James, you've blogged over 60 episodes on your own podcast, The Uncommon Communicator. We'll put links in the show notes so that everyone can get in touch with you and, and follow your show. I'm subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts. So that it's an awesome show. Ladies and gentlemen, James knows a, a little something about communication. But I'd say, can you drop a nugget? I know you're huge on statistics. What are some communication stats that you've learned after doing 60 plus shows? Well, it, there's a lot of stats and I do love a lot of data. Um, that, that's a great question. And I do, I'm a notes guy too. I'm a bullet points kind of person, but when we talk stats, the, the failure of communication, and I'm going to make up numbers here. Cause I sometimes do that when you're a host of a show, you just make stuff up. Right. But I would say 99% of all of our problems on our construction sites, a lot of times in our relationship, it's always communication. And even this week, I had a scenario where somebody says, well, so-and-so, they're just not a good communicator. I'm like, you're right. Because why? You know, she, she didn't give enough information, but there's so many different reasons. So I'm going to go 99% of our communications uh, or of our problems are because we don't communicate well. I'm going to second that, James. I was, I, I mean, it's like every week. So you could just pick any random week in my past. I'm in a conversation with somebody and to me, it becomes clear that what they think they told someone was not, the message wasn't received. Yes. I, I think it's like you say, a lot of times in your show, the miscommunication is this lack of someone having enough wherewithal to get that the receiver has not gotten the message. Yes. And I think, you know, politeness and courtesy can sometimes get in the way, especially in our industry where direct communication is like a little bit unique, like you see it direct communication, the closer you get to the work, the more direct communication gets. And the further you get away, the more courtesy and just these little nuanced things, people fail to say what is what they fail to call the spade a spade. Yeah. Or yeah, say the sky is falling in the event that there's like some catastrophe just around the corner. And, and that happens a lot too, right? You're waiting that everything is a problem. You know, what, what's that saying that, you know, if all you have is a hammer, then all your problems are nails and there's people always looking for those kind of problems, but that's, that's exactly it. Yeah. There's a type of bias, James, I learned about recently. It's a, it's a human bias where when we come to a problem or a communication issue and we, we start to, in our mind, analyze like what's going on, our brain will just feed us the first pattern that is the best close fit, not necessarily the best solution. So I think, you know, for those of us listening to the show, it's really good to cultivate some good habits because you're going to fall victim to your brain feeding you the first closest thing, not the best thing, first closest thing. And so I really appreciate that you've done some episodes on retrospective thinking and that uh, you follow, we were talking before the show started about uh, philosophers and stoicism. And just that different type of attitude so that our first, you know, thing served is not going to do us too much harm. Yeah. And that's, I think that's one of the biggest issues we have with lean as well as communication, which lean, that's, what's drawn me into it is the fact that it's what helps and fixes it is communication. But the idea that we have those biases and when those biases are in there, we always pick that easiest path and we'll continue to do the same habit 
over and over because we pattern ourselves, muscle memory, mind memory, whatever you want to call it. So we will pick the easy, easiest path in our mind that's been repeated, but it's not the easiest path. And those pathways are the hardest things to fix. And that's part of the issue within communication, as you just pointed out. We create our own biases in there. It's a very complicated bag of soup, as I like to call it, because we want the soup in a bag, right? But it is a very complicated bag of soup. And what I've tried to do through the Uncommon Communicator, and these are things that uh, when you mentioned it's about knowing the conversation, went on the idea of enlightenment, which scares some people. That word, I have had people like, ah, oh, oh, you know, I'm not into that Hindu stuff. It's not Hindu stuff, but it's about knowing that that communication has occurred. And that's, that's almost, it's almost like part of a 12-step program, right? You have to admit this is not working here, guys, and you have to see it. And that's the first part is that recognition. Welcome to the EBFC Show, the easier, better for construction podcast. I'm your host, Felipe Engineer Manriquez. This show is all about the business of construction. Today's episode is sponsored by Bosch Refine My Site is a cloud-based construction collaboration platform that applies lean principles to enable your entire team to plan, communicate, and execute in real time. It's the digital tool that works in tandem with your last planner system process and puts it all together in one simple collaborative ecosystem system. This easy-to-use platform is available in English, German, Spanish, Portuguese, and French and can be used on desktops, tablets, and mobile devices. According to Spencer Easton, Scheduling Manager at Oakland Construction, Refine My Site, in my opinion, is the best, leanest tool on the market for the last time it's Here's what our users have to say. We've looked at three other digital scheduling platforms and none compare to the straightforward approach Refund My Site takes. From milestone planning all the way down to daily tasks, this program gives every general contractor and their trade partners meaningful collaboration, accountability, and KPIs. Register today to try Refund My Site for free for 60 days. Today's show is also sponsored by the Lean Construction Institute. LCI is working to lead the building industry in transforming its practices and culture. Its vision is to create a healthy and thriving industry that delivers outstanding project outcomes every time for everyone. Check the show notes for more information. Now, to the show. Welcome to the show, James Dable. James is one of the hosts of the Uncommon Communicator. James, you've got amazing experience as a construction superintendent, decades of experience. We're going to put a link in the show notes below, ladies and gentlemen, so that you can connect with James and read more about his bio. Yeah, it's right down here. If you're watching on YouTube, I'm pointing down. Click on YouTube to expand that title and get all the show notes so that you can connect with James, especially where he's got his little micro gems of communication on TikTok, which I am a follower and often commenter on. James, tell the good people a little bit about why communication is critically important to you. So important that you've made a show and congratulations on, on your growth across dozens and dozens of countries worldwide. That's awesome. What really started me in the idea of communication is I've seen it through, you know, being, where I started out as a tradesman, working my way through that. I, and then as a leader, I realized that communication communicating the plans to the guys that were working, that's where it starts. And in starting those type of communications, I found myself 
I became that guy. I was that superintendent where they, I would got to the point where I told somebody, okay, grab that extension cord. And I want you to run it along that wall right there. And then I want you to go up and over that doorway. So nobody trips and run it over there. And then when you plug in the GFC, I make sure you push the button. Because I know if I didn't say all of that, it would be in front of the doorway. They're like, there's no power at that outlet. And so I would go to those type of details to make sure that I could, could release that you know person to go do a thing. And in doing that, I kind of found out that even then they're only hearing the part they want to hear. And so going through construction, you have to balance it out to who you're giving it to. We had a gentleman who would, uh, if you were to line him out in the morning, you had to give him one task. Like, I would love to be able to say, here's nine things for you to do. If you do five of them, great, we can move on. But if you started on number two, say I'm giving him three things, given him starting on number two, he's building it in his head and he's thinking, all right, I'm going to start doing this. And he's not listening to those other two. So when he finishes it, he's going to come back. So the idea of communication, especially in construction, are things that have to be tailored individually for people. You have to be empathetic. You've got to have some kind of self-awareness. Self-awareness. I'll take that word. That would be a good one. Okay. And you also have to have that, again, back to that empathy, you have to understand that that person is or isn't getting that. And you have to tailor it to that individual. Oh, I love that, James. I was in a, a meeting you know, so we'll call it sometime in the last year. And the construction superintendent was quote unquote, lining out the crew. And the person I, I was first time on there on site, I've not walked the job. I don't know what the job looks like. The site is so large that if you try to walk across it, it'll probably take you easily two hours. And the superintendent's giving like the, what we're going to do today. They mentioned two areas, one or two tasks. And then they, I think because I was in there, James, they ask everybody. Do you have any questions? And everybody just looked like this is not a place for us to answer that question. <laughs> you know? And there was nothing. People didn't even flinch. I was looking at people's eyes, James, and no one even blinked. Mm -hmm. So like it was just the awkward, all kinds of awkward. And then afterwards, you know, one of the people on the team said, That was just a show because you're here. Mm -hmm. And and I said, What is what typically happens? And they said, it's a thousand phone calls a day and it's constant telling people, like you said, to line people out individually that in that scenario, that superintendent is having to line out 12 people individually over the course of an eight hour day. There were no visuals. There were no like pieces of paper. There were no plans. It was literally just people get into get into their vehicles and disperse. And then that superintendent's phone is just ringing every like 10 minutes. And I was thinking, God, I bet James has um, a helping hand to superintendents that, that live their life that way. What, what is like some first advice? Let's just tap on that yeah. bias that you have for the first best fit pattern. What would you tell a superintendent that's living the, my phone rings every three minutes and I have to answer these questions for people? My company had taken over a job that I think the owner of the company had passed away. They were a small company and there was some relationship within ties to our company. And they had asked us to come up and help them finish their job and kind of close things out. And so we were glad to help them out and do that. And we go up there and that superintendent would, he had no trade partner meetings, not sub, there's subcontractors too as well, but he had no trade partner meetings ever. And the OAC was with a, it was a medical facility, a very small clinic. And he would go around all day long 
talking to all the subs. He never once got them in the same room. So the fact that uh, it, it may be for show or not, I mean, getting everybody in the room is, I think, the key part. But as I've kind of transitioned my own, you know, learning is those the the visual boards, you know, having some information up for the crew. But the big thing that I like to do as a communicator, I like to talk, is I make sure that I'm engaging people. And that's part of that soft skill, I think, that I've seen that I have to do. If you have the guy who's just kind of like doing this on the job site or during the meeting, you know he's not listening. You have guys looking you right in the eye, he's not listening. So I always try to, and this is when I run Zoom meetings as well too, everybody's going to say cameras on. So that I know that's a different world, but when you're in in lining out your crews and teams, you know, you've got to make that contact and makes, you got to be engaging. And that's unfortunate is we have a lot of the, am I allowed to use the word dictators? Of course. It's, a, it's true. And, you know, you're going to do exactly what they're telling you to do and they're going to tell you and then you're out. And so those are not effective communication styles anytime. And with that opportunity to engage people, and I like to make it fun, you know, it's okay to laugh. And, and I know that not everybody's fun and not everybody likes to laugh. And I think those are right. some hindrance to those type of dictatorial leaderships because they, they do like the authority. They like, you know, telling people what to do, but they're not being effective. So everybody leaves and scatters and they actually, there is that kind of drive of having to be needed. Uh, when I had left the company about six, seven years ago, and for the first time in my life, I only have one phone. I don't have a, a my personal phone, a company phone. I had turned in my phone, got a new phone number, went on vacation. So first time ever, and that phone didn't ring. <laughs> Like, am I even relevant anymore? So when you're getting those phone calls, you almost thrive off of that. And that goes back to that. I'm not necessarily a bias, but the habits of wanting to feel needed. So they're, they feel like they've engaged all day by being on the phone and you're not being effective. You're not doing as much as you, as you could do. And you're making your life harder by doing that. Absolutely. It's a dopamine drip to have your yes. phone constantly ring. But I get a lot of text messages that I, mm -hmm. I typically ignore. I tell people. I will respond eventually to your text, usually within 24 hours. That's my service level agreement with text message responses, because as James knows, like you're on a site, you could be in some dangerous situations. You can't even have your phone in your hand when you're in some construction sites because it's, it could end in peril for you. That's one thing I always try to, anytime I've got a new team, I talk about, it, it's basically a mini communication plan. How do you prefer to be communicated to? Everybody's different. You know, I've had people tell me, email me. I'm not going to check my phone when I'm at my computer all day. All right. Other guys, text me, call me. You know, always pick up the phone. I'm a big send an email call. Uh, the emails we have to do a lot of times for documentation. And also you're including a bigger group, but I'll, I'll make a phone call. Hey, did you get my email? Uh, back in the day when I used to do read receipts, which I don't do anymore. Uh, but you oh, you're one of those guys. <laughs> as soon as he read it, you're like, all right, I know we just read it. Boom. Then you call him. That was probably deceitful in some way. But the idea that you talk about what is, what is your preferred communication plan? Because for me, I'm, I'm in meetings a lot. And so a text to me, I can respond. I can fix a problem. I can take care of stuff. If I'm in a meeting via text versus having to walk out and make a phone call. And if it's important and the guys know, they'll, it's like, can we chat or I need to talk now? I'll excuse myself if I'm not leaving the meeting and then go have that conversation. But to talk about and have an understanding of what is, what's your communication style? How are we going to communicate with each other? What's best for you? 
you know, there's the, there's the emailers and I am not, a, if you, if you're going to email back and forth by three times with messages that could have been texts, like, you know, you're wasting the email paper or whatever, some, somewhere that's taken up space somewhere. But the idea is don't, uh, don't go back and forth on those type of emails, pick up the phone and get it over with. So I actually said that I was involved in a chain of emails between a couple of people and it's getting a little bit heated and I'm, and I'm like, and I don't always type like this, yeah. but I'm like, you need to uh, pick up the phone and let's have a conversation because it wasn't being productive. And there was, I even saw within, that's the best part about an email. You would start seeing the miscommunications. You know, you have somebody who says something and asks three questions and one question gets answered and then two more get asked. And before you know it, nobody's, you know, even knows what they're doing anymore. Email is a very ineffective and cold form of communication. And, and all that bouncing back wastes time. And you know that my default, James, is to make things easier. And having complications in the email is not the way, especially for delicate situations. I've had some people even say to me, like, you know, we need to talk and it's got to be face to face. Like they're just crystal clear. And I appreciate that. Uh, I think nonverbal, you could, you probably know the real statistic, James, nonverbal communication is more than 70%. I appreciate how you think I'm a knowledge bag of information and stats. Uh, I love stats. I'm drawn to stats, but the one thing that I have promised myself is not to keep them up here. Uh, they're in there somewhere. So I, I try to keep I, them in there. Yeah, so you and I, well, we'll just go to the listeners of the show who have the ability to look things up. That verbal communication, I believe for memory is when you're talking to a one human being. 70% of all messages received are nonverbal. And so yeah. I've, and actually I have, I've heard, and that's the problem I have with some stats is depends on where you go. They're going to vary. So we try to pick an average or pick the one that I like. And 70% is, I think on the light side, I think I've heard all the way up to 80, 85%. And I think it does depend on the individual. You know, have you ever had that person where you were like, I can't read them. Like, yeah. You know, <laughs> So clearly they're not giving you any, uh, nonverbals at all. It's like, what is going on here? But that's, Our, those numbers are pretty high on the nonverbal side. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's closer to 85%. Not that's the number. Again, back to communication styles. Like we have the, the president of our region. He is, uh, he's a former superintendent and now he's the president of, you know, the mountain states region, which we did about 600 million, I think last year or last fiscal year. Congrats. I mean, it's, it, we were uh, the largest, we're the second largest revenue contractor in the region. And the first one uh, was at Kiwit, which was doing like a billion dollar job, you know, Ron, I said, so they didn't count. They're doing different types of work, heavy civil, right. but uh, we had a great year. We've had some great years over the last three or four years, uh, revenue wise. And anyways, he was a superintendent. This is the guy who hired on as a laborer and was running a Bobcat is now running our division. So. He runs it like a superintendent, which is, that's one of the things that I love about my company is they have, it's ran by superintendents and there's, you know, there's a different thinking from the superintendent to the project manager and, and, or the executive, you know, the guy who wears the fancy loafers. I think I heard a superintendent refer to them as uh, poodles because they come in on the job site and they're tiptoeing around because they don't want to get their shoes dirty. Uh, that's what he called ah, the, the office for the poodle. But oh. having him run like a superintendent, when you're talking to him, uh, he, when he comes in the room, you know, if he you know, pops his head in, he's getting that, he's getting his responses right now. He commands that type of respect. He commands that type of room. But also when you're giving him information, 
he doesn't want the fluff. And I, I like to tell the story. Like if I'm going to tell you something, here's the background. This is why I think we should do it. You know, let's make a decision. You know, I do this kind of three-part presentation. He's like, get to the point. Like, what's the point? And then if he has any questions, he'll ask. And then he makes a decision really fast. And so you have to operate that way with him. Whereas there are some other people that you run into that need that backstory. They need the, I need to sell them on this, you know, this great story for them to buy in on it. So everybody has, you know, they take those kinds of things uh, differently and you have to know how to, to give it to them. I kind of do the same. I give some background. I'm almost following like an A3. You get a little bit of context, telling the story. And then I'm giving people options at the end. Well, and that's, I love that. I didn't realize we shared that about thinking out loud. And I was recently called out on this maybe a year or so ago. I was working with one of our estimators and uh, I'm, I like to throw ideas out there. And I've done it from game. My wife has now stopped me from, we don't play games anymore because I will, especially if those games where you're shouting words out to get to the first answer, I'm throwing anything out there. Sometimes it throws people off. It makes them laugh. I'm not doing it on purpose. It's just, that's what's coming out. I'm thinking out loud. And when I was working with this estimator on some different things, he goes, well, what about this situation? Well, there's this, there's this, and there's this. Well, what about this? And I'm throwing him out there. And he's, he admitted later, he's like, that's overwhelming. Like, I don't, I'm not receiving this because you're giving me too much. He's a processor. He likes to think about it before he speaks. And so we, knowing this, now I kind of know how to process through with him to make sure that we're giving him the information for the project for him to put it in the estimate. But I have to approach it differently. But for me, I still think it's the perfect style, right? If I have something, let's get it out there. And I want you to do the same thing. Let's shoot out ideas. Let's write them down. And together, we're going to come up with an idea that's going to be completely different, but it's not going to happen unless we're giving them out there. So that part of somebody who kind of thinks, you know, reclusively, I think there's a lot of stuff that's left on the table because they're like, well, it didn't quite fit. Well, it might. And so I, I'm glad we share that thinking out loud. Maybe we should uh, collaborate together because those people that are reclusive, they don't like me. Same. I have a, one friend who's like super high analytical thinker. And I, one time I realized it and I said to him, I said, you know, I'm going to say a lot of things in this 10 minute conversation. And I said, three days later, I'm going to predict it right now. Three days later, you're going to call me and react to finally everything I said. And it was four days later, four days later, I got the call and then he was just telling me like he finally caught where I was because he had to analyze everything that I said. And I was like, you know, I'm just throwing out all these options. Like these are all the things that you can do. And I said, you're going to be the one running it and you're going to do it. So you've got to pick what you're going to run with Not Don't default to what I'm saying. So I'm just, I'm just going to give you a bunch of options. And it took four days until he came back and said, okay, I'm going to do this. And I was like, okay, you went, uh, I didn't, he's like, well, you know, but I took this part and then this, and then I kind of ran some scenarios like, man, I never even thought of that. And I was like, I stopped thinking about it three days ago. I forgot you were even going to call me back. Do you ever have somebody come back and say, do you remember when you said, and then That's, do you get that kind of pit in your stomach? I'm like, uh, no, I, what did I say? Was it good? Cause I know that there's somebody out there thinking, man, he said this and I'm mad and they don't tell me, but I get that all the time. And one of my bosses. Uh, in the past, he would do that. And he was a processor as well, too. And I didn't realize that until probably recently on why it took him so long to kind of gather the stuff that I would say, because I would just, you know, do that speaking out loud. And he goes, hey, remember when you said this, we're going to start doing that. And it would be not even three days. I mean, I don't even like sometimes a week later, uh, he would bring something up. Do you remember when you said, so that's always kind of my, 
I cringe a little because no, I don't remember. I said a lot of things there. Maybe they were good. I don't know. James, I'm even, you know, sometimes I'm driving and I'll pop out an old podcast episode and I'm like, wow, I said that. I think you would think like, you know, I've got the recording to prove that I said it. Like I hear my own voice and I'm like, wow. Someone called me from a, a company. They do a lot of, uh, design build work. And like two years ago, we had a, a short one hour conversation when they're calling to get some help on some question that they thought I had an answer to. And I don't really remember all the things that I said, but they, they came back two years later and said that the advice I gave made a huge difference in what they did. And it had like all kinds of ripple effects. And, you know, and I asked, you know, I was like, just out of curiosity, I said, thank you. You know, I'm polite, at least that polite, but why the two year gap? And it said, it took that long for them to see that it would work. As I said, but they said it actually came out exactly as I predicted. It's like, okay. If you were talking back to the younger James Gable and he's, you're on your first construction project, what is the number one piece of advice that you give to yourself? I really love it. I love that question. We've asked that at some Toastmaster meetings because it really gets you to think about yourself and also what would you, how would you help somebody else? I really do love that question. And I've, I've thought a lot about how looking back in my career, I had a lot of people that really helped me get to where I'm at because I didn't realize how smart I was. And I, I don't, I'm not saying that I'm no brilliant. I'm certainly the there, there, there's no IQ test that I'm taking here saying that I'm brilliant, but looking back at how I had my work ethic and how I did things, I don't think I had a lot of confidence. So have more confidence is something that I tell a lot of people. And I'm looking for it now in my younger guys as well, too, is they don't realize when you've got a field, field engineer who's high performing, he doesn't sometimes know or is in comparison. And it's a tough one because you have a lot of guys who think so well of themselves and they're not. Right. It's the guy who isn't so more sensitive to those type of individuals who aren't, you know, into their ego and they don't realize how good they are. Uh, you know, I had through my career decided that I wasn't the smartest guy that was in my mind that I could outwork anyone. So I wanted to work as hard as I possibly could. So I put a lot of effort into each level of my career as an apprentice. I wanted to be the best apprentice I could be when, and then I realized, boy, foreman, they keep the foreman and lay everybody else off. Maybe I want to run somewhere. So I, I, you know, those are the steps that I made, not really thinking about where I would end up, you know, and there's, there's young guys that are on our jobs and they're going to be superintendents way earlier than we ever could have been, or they should be because there's such a, a, an age gap. We're missing that gap, but they're going to have to have that confidence to be able to run that work at an earlier age. So that's what I would tell myself is, uh, you know, have more confidence in the things that, you know. And that's why I think sometimes you have people who help you in your career. And I had that, man, this one guy, Bob Lilja, he really you know, saw something in me, made me my first foreman job, taught me a lot of things. He was a general, uh, general super or general foreman and taught me a lot of things about how to run a job. And, and through that connection, he helped me and probably saw something in me that I didn't see. So now I feel like I, that's what I owe to our industry is seeing what people don't see and helping them get to that spot that they didn't know where they were going. That's incredible, James. That's really good advice. Very profound. And I just bumped into a, one of the professionals, Paul, that works in our IT group, and he's actually in Toastmasters and I've never done Toastmasters. I did some impromptu speaking and extemporaneous speaking in high school. Uh, didn't win anything. And 
as I always tell people, like it was a great foundation of failure. But look how far we can go. So I love that you've given yourself that great advice and your, and that advice is like, it shows a lot of your character, James. You're looking out for other people. Even though I asked you to focus on you, you're still with an eye to helping other people. So I really like that about you. Now, have you done any coaching and mentoring with superintendents? Like anytime, well, we could go back as far as like 20 years. Let's put a big range on it. And I'm just looking for a yes or no on that for a second. Have I done coaching? Yes or no? Yes. Okay. Have you done mentoring of other like active superintendents on the same job or have you done it, uh, on other across projects? Well, and I, so as a general superintendent, I had at one point it, we, uh, over the small projects here, we had about nine, 10 guys that were superintendents reporting to me, assistant soups. So that was always in that, you know, leading and coaching through, you know, the career goals and, you know, some of those other things, uh, not to the level looking back, I wish I had done more, uh, in helping develop their, uh, core competencies to help them get to the next level. So there's, there's, it's always a learning process, but most recently it had been with a couple of young gentlemen. I had hired a superintendent, wasn't a good fit. Like his schedule was a mess and we were having issues with them, with the owner as well, uh, trying to get stuff passed through. And then before you knew it, his, I couldn't even understand it. There's no logic in a schedule at all. He couldn't communicate that to the owner and the team was frustrated. I hired him as a, as a more experienced gentleman, we'll call it. And I wanted him to uh, mentor the team and also, you know, develop my young guys and run the job as well. And it wasn't that big, it's three, $4 million job. This guy's done big jobs, uh, you know, in Washington, DC, resume wise, just was not a good fit at all. And I had to let, he let himself go. Uh, I would say that I haven't, I've never fired anybody. They've only fired themselves. So I had to let him go and I took the job over it. And it was kind of neat because that was when I was very, which I still am, uh, in the infancy of lean, you know, talking about lean. So I'm like, we, we've got to change this. We have to change this job. So we threw up a constraint board. We had daily huddles. I had thrown his schedule out and I got all the last planners and it was a great opportunity because they'd been there for months going nowhere. And I got all of the guys actually doing the work in place, which we, we even still don't do uh, enough of our last planning because we're very much in the infancy of it. We'll bring in the estimators and whoever had part of it and try to pull plan to some milestones. And I don't think we're doing it correctly. And then, so we're trying to start at the grassroots. So I got their input. How long do you think for this? How long do you think for this? How long do you think for this? And before you knew it, I was making her end date and he was off by two months. So I got them involved, but I know this is a very long story and there'll be another <laughs> Another anecdote to go along with that is I had two field engineers, rock stars, and they don't even know it. They were on the project and I had the opportunity to work with them and both of them added up, didn't make my age. And that's when I knew I was old. Like these two guys didn't make my age. And so they're kind of given the old guy jokes, which I gave them out for years. I, I deserve it. I'll take it. Give it to me. Uh, you know, I'll find with that, but being able to mentor them and coach them a lot of times, you know, just came in stories, not, not, not even prescribed stories, but you know, things, something will come up. Well, what do you think of this? Well, I'll help them kind of process it, you know, be decision makers or uh, problem solvers, and then let them kind of roll through. And then I'd tell them a story. And so the, sometimes they would like, you know, lean back, kick their feet up story time. 
Uh, but I felt like I was really making that connection and contact with them. And since then, those two field engineers are assistant soups right now. And they're running jobs as assistant soups, you know, somewhere in the range of a million to, you know, two to $3 million, you know, with some guidance from other superintendents. But that, those are the guys that I felt like I really was able to make that connection with. It's harder to coach more experienced superintendents because what gets us to that point? You know, we know everything or we think they know everything. So to be somebody who is always learning, those are rarer than I thought. You know, I always have considered myself a lifelong learner. I'm always trying to be better at what I'm doing, but not everybody sees that. And that goes back to that. Once we hit the spot where it's easy, then we're just going to ride that out. And if that's writing in my day planner every day, or, you know, that's why technology and things are harder to implement with some of our more experienced suits because they've had success that way. I feel that uh, through all my studying, I've come to find that it's one thing that's very consistent with human beings. We learn through stories. And anybody that thinks otherwise, think again. As like yeah. the research is clear on this, stories reinforce lessons. They're very powerful. We tell, and I think if people who have done some meta analysis is on the type of movies that are successful, like the blockbuster, blockbuster movies have a formula and people criticize it for being predictable, but it still generates hundreds of millions to billions of dollars in a year because people like stories and they like learning in story form. And I was even watching a cartoon of all things. And in the cartoon, they were referencing a superhero movie and characters in the movie to reinforce a lesson learned to the characters in the cartoon. And I thought, wow, this is really strange. You have cartoons referencing a blockbuster movie. But the stranger thing was I completely understood the message they were trying to convey about friendship. And I was just like, that's how powerful the storytelling is because we invest in the characters and we put and imbibe things into that to make it more meaningful for us. So I'm not surprised that those engineers are now able to run work and they've benefited from all your stories because those stories have reinforced the lesson. I will not lean back. I will engage with you. I'm on the edge of my chair with your, your storytelling. So thank you. I do want to say on, uh, on last planner system or pool planning, people in the industry complicate it quite a bit. And I'm glad that you're, you're open and honest and say like you're learning. I'm the same way. Like everything you said, James resonates with me. I'm a lifelong learner and I found, uh, the people that I have, I struggle with to implement lean are people that fundamentally philosophically think that they got it. Like they're at the ultimate apex of their craft and that there's nothing new for them to learn. And then the people that are open and saying, well, I'm not sure, or I don't know, or how can I get better? How can I make this easier for my team? Those people, we could work forever together and have all kinds of fun and transport projects. But the resistors are sometimes resistant for fear or as a challenge to their authority or perceived power. And that's, that takes different tactics to deal with. And I want to say for all the people listening, because we haven't talked about Last Planner, the show for, for a minute, and very scrum heavy for the last couple of shows. Last planner is based on, oh, oh no, there it is. There's my baby. <laughs> yeah. There's a chapter at the end of the book in part three dedicated to breaking down last planner and scrum and how they're interconnected. But for all the people listening, last planner, and I heard this uh, from Will Littig, who works at our company, he's one of the early pioneers of implementing lead. And he said that when Clint, 
when Glenn Ballard and Greg Howell invented Last Planner, he said it, these are Will's words. It wasn't like etched in rock and brought down forth from the mountain and handed out to people. He's like, they tested and failed thousands of times and only kept the things that worked and made it better. And then they shared with, with people that could go test it across many places in parallel. And then that information came back to them and they iterated on it and made it better and better and better. And there's some, there's some rumors, James, that, that Jeff Sutherland and Ken Schwaber had some interminglings with, uh, Greg and Glenn, but I've not had those rumors confirmed. I got to talk to Glenn about that, but there's some cross-pollinization, but I think for people listening, if you are on a project and you're creating a schedule and James is going to correct me if I'm wrong, and I hope, I hope you do. There's a pattern of questioning that gets you onto a very good last planner. And I'm going to say the pattern worked better with some kind of visuals. So if you're using sticky notes or some kind of digital way or a whiteboard or a calendar, some way you've got to make what people say and talk to visual sticky notes and the process that is included with that makes the conditions for people to have really good conversations. So I personally will recommend and use sticky notes as an aid to set the right environment, but the five conversations are what should we do? What will we do? What can we do? What did we do? And what did we learn? And if you engage those five conversations with a team, you pretty much guarantee you're going to improve your schedule, almost guaranteed. And I find James, that when people go out of order, you don't get there as easily than if you follow the script. So I think for anyone listening, if you know, or understand last planner, I would tell you, find a whiteboard, write down how you're going to engage with your team, like create an outline. James, you like bullet point lists, right? I do. Yeah. Make a bullet point list of like, you've got, if you carved out an hour or two hours with a team, if, if you're doing it in an hour, if you've got an experience and you can do it in an hour and your team's small enough, you should be able to, you know, every, if you had four or five bullet points, that means that you're changing conversation every 10 minutes, roughly. So you can, that's what I do. I carve it back to time. And then I try to hit those time targets with teams. And my record, James, is I've done one time I did three whole plans for three separate phases on an airport project with two separate teams. So I had two teams in, we had the one team watching, we did one plan in 30 minutes. Then we did another one in an hour, almost 45 minutes, captured three areas, three different pull plans. I thought it was impossible. Project manager challenged me because he was a disbeliever and he's like, this can't work with this team. These people don't know. And I said, your team is limited by your imagination and it is scary how limited it is. So they ended up making up time and they finished having a schedule on a very tough TI. And if you're, anyone's ever worked in an airport, there are multiple layers of people with authority and, and there's an endless supply of opinions on what should be done and how. Well, yeah, I've got a question in regards to that pull planning, because again, we're, I think very much amateurs at it. We, we do it on a lot of our bigger projects and I've ran a lot of our small, I've been in the small projects world for the most part. So they'll do that at, you know, kickoff of a meeting and really just trying to hit some milestones. And we had one facilitator who was somewhat knowledgeable in pull planning, but that was part of it is I haven't been involved in somebody who's really good at it. You really have to see it reading a book, trying to understand even the principle and then you know, I feel like I can, I can facilitate a conversation, but I, you have to facilitate them in the right way. Like the questions you were asking, 
So I think sharing those type of visuals, like videos, I believe Armando Tunales did a little video of a little poll plan that he did on LinkedIn. And I'm like, wow, it's, it's like I went into the secret chamber of his magic that he's trying to do with his team. And those are the type of things I think that are challenging because we're all, you know, work for different, you know, companies. And for the most part, not always competitors. Sometimes we are. I'm not competitors with anyone that I am uh, friends with on LinkedIn in regards to work here locally, you know, with a lot of, I, I, I first you asked if I was in uh, the Dallas area, a yeah. lot of our listeners are like, I've made a lot of connections with uh, Buddy Brumley and some other uh, James Gentoris. There's people I've met on LinkedIn that are listeners, uh, you know, Jesse, of course, and, and Jen Lacey and all of those I've interacted with on LinkedIn in the Dallas, Texas area. To me, it's what you're Texas, right? I don't okay. know. It's like, Hey, are you from Dallas? No, I'm in San Antonio. Isn't that the same thing? I don't know. Anyway, so back to, it's not really a competition necessarily, but we need to share those things. So I've, we actually did a poll plan on a small project at estimating time. We wanted to come in and do it differently. Got the different, we actually had our trade partners bought in. We weren't going to bid them out because typically TIs and a lot of these things are, are fixed price and those are challenging enough. So you can't really bring a team in you with the lowest bid. So we did that and we pulled really a schedule that would typically, we would have just thrown eight to 10 weeks of GCs at got it down to seven weeks, you know, and if this guy worked one weekend, we saved a week. And so we kind of worked through those details of bid time. We ended up not winning the job because our competition was already in the building working for that owner. And so they're like, Hey, you guys, your price was, you know, right in there, but we're going to go with it. And so that was a little frustrating, a little disappointing, but we applied it early and it was semi-effective, but whole planning has to happen with and in the field with the guys that are doing the work. And because we're on the small project side, it's easier to, to look four weeks ahead because you're only looking, you know, the, you know, three, four month time frame. And so right. I've had a little bit of a change just in my work structure. I needed to kind of go back to boot camp, learn about how some of our processes go on. I wanted to learn a little bit more about ground up stuff. And I'm physically running a job, $4 million a renovation, complete gut, inside, outside, but also included, you know, exterior work as well as site work, new sidewalk, asphalt, paving, curb and gutter, whole nine yards. Like this is going to be a brand new building with an old bone structure. So I'm now pushing the buttons again, which I hadn't had to do. It's easy to direct a team. So I'm trying to learn those processes so I can teach them. So there's a whole, there's a bigger picture to all this and probably not worth telling right now. But what is exciting for me is I can talk about how we can do this last platter with guys that aren't necessarily bought in within my team. Now I get to do it and say, this works. Cause I haven't had that opportunity at the level that I came in with looking at how am I going to apply these principles? I'm about a third of the way through this brilliant story, by the way, it is Thank a you. story. I was pleased yeah. to see that, you know, that as it was laid out in a story, but, um, I'm, I don't read, read, I listen, listen. So uh, I'm reading when I can. So I've already taken some of the principles of the idea of Scrum and I, and I'm, I'm in, I'm all in. Like I, when I read it, started reading it, I'm like, this is just, it, it's it kind of like, I don't feel like I'm in, I'm not inventing anything new on communication. I'm really not. I, I think the idea of enlightenment and ownership, those are the two things I talk about, bring clarity to trying to help with communication. But when you look at you know what's in the book, as far as the Scrum board, and I've got it up here to do, doing done, right? Just those three simple things. You're like, oh, that's easy, but it's not happening. And I've got people within the team who are, who are scattered because they're not organized and put it on a note, right? They're not even taking notes in that fashion organizationally. So 
it for me and how my mind thinks, I love that idea of Scrum. So you and I will be chatting. Other than this, I am game. I want to be all in as being a Scrum master. I think that is the way to communicate on any team. Uh, you made a comment, I think, to one of my posts about uh, a project being, you know, 4,000%, it's going to improve and cut that time in half. I forget your numbers. You know, it was, and I'm like, ah, oh, come on. Like, really? And then I realized that not everybody's doing it as simply as that. So I'm already have that board up on my project to do, and I have my to-do list. And guess what? Those things like, oh yeah, I still have to do it. It's that visual reminder. And it's a whiteboard with sticky notes. And previously kind of against the sticky note idea because and, and I'm 53 and I'm, I, I love technology and I'm like, there's gotta be a way to do this technology wise. And then there is. And there's, you know, I, I, someone asked me recently, James, how many software solutions are there that allow you to do scrum? And I, I, I did some research. It's more than 50. Wow. There are more than 50 now, but I like Trello because the people that invented Trello used scrum to invent Trello and they use scrum to update the system regularly. And they got eventually bought by another company at last year. I like that people drink their own kool-aid and eat their own cooking so that's why and, and of course i know from working with jeff sutherland that microsoft um, uses scrum in a lot of their software development and some of their software updating as well so i know some teams from from memory i'm not sure about that of some of the apps but there is some there's quite a bit of scrum adoption in microsoft as well and i appreciate connecting those dots i use trello as well i use it for uh, club growth. I'm club growth director for district 26 and Toastmasters. I also, we've had a couple of projects that we'll use it as project boards and now it makes sense. I didn't really put the, yeah. how weekly is that? So electronically, um, and I need to do that for this job. I need to do it for my PM just so he can see the stuff. Cause he's like, oh yeah. I can't yeah. That. So uh, I'm going to do that. And it is free. I do have that Trello board, but for the guys in the field, then I, it just, this is what kind of eye opening for me this week that I'm not going to have Joe, the carpenter pull out his phone and look at the Trello board to see what's next, right? He's going to look at my board and says, okay, that's where it's at. So those, those visual boards do need to be in the idea of the sticky note. And I like the sticky note even better than the idea of the whiteboard because you can move it without right. having to erase. I mean, there's, even though it seems in my mind, old school and archaic and why haven't we transitioned beyond it? It's effective. I've had the, the benefit of touring multiple uh, automobile assembly lines in Europe and in the United States, and they're using visual controls to help make the work easier for the workers. And the, the visuals are at the place that they're needed. So it's not like you're not even making the worker to turn their head, the right at decision points and they're super obvious. And so I think the sticky notes, you know, we borrow that from Kanban, Kanban boards or or note cards or signboards and translating it into English from Japanese. I love the uh, process. I love the idea that you're bringing that many people together. But I think the challenge that I have, even in the small side, as well as on the large side, is really getting trade partner buy-in, you know? And so we've chose, in some occasion, some of our MEPs, you know, the guys that are running a majority of the scopes, bringing them in and pulling them and then everybody else kind of follows at this point, because you're not going to get even our drywall guys, it depends on who they are, uh, how progressive they are. And some of our trade partners are even such small scopes within our smaller projects that they're, they're going to show up at night because they started at the shop, loaded up, and they're going to be done by the end of the day. You know, I'm not, I want to be aware and cognizant of the time that I'm burning from them because I have seen that I've, we've been part of a pull plan 
on about a $60 million project, brought them in twice. I don't think it was as effective as we had, but it was probably the facilitation that got us there because they all had their own schedules. So I had two people. I had one trade, uh, the uh, mechanical plumbing trade. He'd already had a schedule. They were, they were a top-notch performer. He knew what he needed to do to make his money. Then I had the other trade, the electrical trade. And he's like, what's the schedule? Tell me when to be here. And it was just those two opposites. So I, I'm, I'm going to say a lot of words to come down to a question is how do you blend in when you have people who have the, in their mind, their own schedule, then you have some that are like, just telling me what to do. How do you blend those together in a last planner on a scenario? What you're describing is variation and people's preparedness and experience with scheduling and with bullet planning. And so I've seen the extreme where nobody has ever heard of bullet planning. And I've also seen where no one's ever had to make a schedule. I've been on construction projects, James, where there are no schedules. Like there's a schedule that the general contractor has, hasn't shared with anybody. It's like a mystery. And then the trades don't have a schedule and they're on the same getting told where to be. And, and the superintendent is with good intentions to get the thing done, putting people anywhere work is available to be done with zero flow. And those jobs take brutally too long. So. What I would do, James, whatever, if you're in your, whatever phase you're in, somebody on that team is like the main star. And the easy way to figure that out is who has the most people? Mm -hmm. Oh, I got that. So whoever has the most people through this phase of work, and let's just, if, if you're on a 12 month job, break it up into one month chunks and say for the next 30 days, who's going to have the most people on the site? I put that person into row one. And we're going to create flow for that trade. And we're going to just err on the side of optimizing for them, because if they're the most people on the site in the next 30 days, they very likely are setting the flow and the tempo and the pace for everybody else. Now to make the schedule really flow and to have amazing experiences, you're plugging all the other trades in and out of their work. There's going to be handoffs. And so if you try to optimize for that, you will find next when you make that visual. Some trades will not be able to keep up with that trade that's in position one. So you ask that position one trade to back down their resources a little bit. But when you do that, that trade is going to see that, and they'll see it in seconds when you show the tool plan, getting that sequence to the milestone, you're going to see that milestone actually shift to the left because instead of doing a big batch of stuff and then waiting for the other trades to catch up and then coming back. Cause that waiting time for that trade with a lot of people, they're burning dollars. If they have to send people away and come back, if they're in and out of your job, that's losing money. Because when the people come back in, there's a learning curve. Even if they get in and out of your job for a year, you want to keep everybody on site. The goal is to keep everybody on site with as big and as small as a crew that they can stay on site and be nearly having uninterrupted flow the whole time. And so doing those two tricks or tips, James, should help to create a pool in that milestone to shore it up. And then everyone's going to experience instantaneously an improvement in time. So James, what I do when we have a, when we do a pool session, I'll say the original day was this. Now, based on the sequence that you all came up with, it's now this. The delta between those two is five days, 10 days, 15 days. I say the average crew size, I'll go around the room. What's your average crew size right now through the scope of work? And they'll spit it out and then I'll get my calculator and I'll calculate. I was like, 
we just spent two hours, but you all just saved your companies $50,000. So all of you get to keep that 50,000. I'm not going to issue you a deductive change order. That's your money, your profit, do with it will you want. And so what I start to see, and when I tell them, I communicate back to them the dollars and save time, those foremen get kudos from their company. Cause now they go back to their estimators and their project managers and say, Hey, we just did this pool plan session and we saved 20 grand for this month. Like that's huge money. And I'm talking about for like a $2 million to $10 million scope. When you're on the bigger mega jobs, those dollars are astronomically higher. And that's just free money that you could get because you're improving the flow. That, so that concept of reducing the crew new to me, uh, I, I finished the goal. I've been listening to the collabo sessions with Jesse and with, uh, Thomas LeMay, uh, when I read the goal and then I also, when he recommended the undoing to me as well, Thomas did, and I've read both of those, the idea of reducing your crew size and Thomas tells a story about how he was re kind of restricting the flow of material onto the job. And that's counterintuitive to what we think of as superintendents or even on the project, like let's get them in here and get them done and get them early. And how often does that mess up the next trades? And we, you know, and then we just kind of fight through it. It's so counterintuitive, but it's almost that mind shift, which is hard to grasp the pole plan. Like that was having a facilitated a couple of pole planning sessions, the concept of polling it, it, I, and I, I'm still working on a better way to communicate it because it's hard for our trade partners. It's hard for us as humans to look backwards on that. They're like, well, I need to do it this way. No, you need to do right. it this way. So yeah. that is, so that's, I'm going to, I'm going to stop you right there, James. That's a super common misconception that people have, especially when you're in a construction phase. A lot of times if, if the people are really got their head in what the work is, go forward to make your first pass to hit that milestone. Don't force people to go backwards. I do this all the time. Like if, if the closer people know what the work is, it's so much easier and faster to go a forward pass. Like what's the next thing you're going to do? Like I still tell people, like, here's the milestone we're headed towards. What are you doing first to get there? What are you doing over the next week? And start getting it on the board so we can expose what the sequence is. And then we, we do, once it's all up and exposed, James, then you just walk backwards and just say, Hey, to do this. And like you as a facilitator will literally stand at the milestone and say, right before we turn over this phase, you know, we're doing, you just look at the sticky notes. We're doing this for five days or whatever, 10 days. And then before that, we're doing this and you're going backwards and you ask people before you walk backwards, if you hear anything that sounds wrong or we're missing something, speak up and interrupt me right now. And that makes it so much easier. Some teams can't think backwards. And if you have one person that's critical to your milestone. And they're not a backwards, they can't think backwards. You better go forward because you will only be as good as the slowest person or the longest to understand person. So you have to, you have to come down to whatever is necessary because what do we want, James? We want perfect communication. I like it. What is the UC moment for you in this show? To visualize our communications. I think that's been our theme throughout our discussion today is we lose a lot of stuff in just words, but if we visualize it and have it presented, then we're going to communicate it. And it's there as a reminder. How's that for a UC moment of the EBFC UC moment of the day. Back I love that chance. I love that so much. Thank you. Very special. Thanks to my guest. I'm Felipe engineer Manriquez. 
The EBFC show is created by Felipe and produced by a passion to build easier and better. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, everybody. Let's go build.